Hello, I'm Ross Taylor. As regular listeners know, events like to conspire against us. We recorded this podcast on Wednesday, as usual, and then on Thursday, the EU announced it would take legal action against the UK over the infamous Internal Market Bill. So we've reconvened Wednesday's panel for a quick pre-credits sequence. Not all of us are in our usual places, so we might not sound quite like usual. Please forgive us. Naomi Smith, what exactly has happened here? Why is the EU taking legal action and what will it consist of? Well, it's really very simple. The European Union is taking legal action because the United Kingdom has breached the terms of the withdrawal agreement. It's an international agreement and the EU therefore has every right to do so. We've we've reneged on an inter- or at least stated our ambition to renege on an international treaty and and they've got every right to do so particularly um as they say it won't pull them out of trade talks doing it, uh, nor do I expect it to impact the UK uh, negatively in terms of walk, walking away from, from those talks. So uh, they're doing it purely because we've threatened to break the law and they're having none of it. This is already a key week. The Internal Market Bill, with its provisions to break international law, looked an awful lot like Britain trying to engineer a fight with the EU and ratchet up the tension. Is that working for Britain now that the EU has responded? Uh, look, I, I, I think it's probably unhelpful to those of us that want um, a good deal because, of course, this is going to create some tensions between negotiators. It will make it um, a little bit more difficult for them to see eye to eye. But I, I, I really don't think the EU wants to pull the rug out from under the talks and make itself seem petulant. It just does need to stand up for Ireland. You know, it's incredibly important that it does that and is seen to do that. And and the UK won't pull the rug either. I think in terms of the, the internal markets bill, which, as you say, um, you know, passed through uh, the Commons this week, it's still working its way through the upper house. Um, and if we remember, the reason that the government gave for the internal market bill was all around these food food exports to Northern Ireland possibly being blocked by the EU. Um, And the government has, of course, now accepted all of those assurances that the EU gave uh, over all of that. So so the reason it had for doing the bill in the first place is more or less gone. And do you know what? They were never really a concern anyway, because there were always provisions to to stop things like food shortages uh, from from happening under the Northern Irish Protocol. And moreover, just I think in the spirit of rebuilding our future relationship um, with Europe, the UK could probably take these provisions off the table, uh, either to increase the chances of a deal or after one has been agreed. Alexandreou. We now have a deadline. The EU has given the UK till the end of October to remove the provisions of the IMB. Mm. This is quite a long time and it goes past Johnson's self-imposed deadline for a deal on October the 15th or before. How are they playing it? Oh, that deadline was quietly dropped. Um, Johnson said if a deal had not been done by October 15th, the UK would walk precisely like he had said, incidentally, in May, if a deal hadn't been done by the end of July. But Gove in Brussels on Monday said, the Prime Minister has been very clear, which is code for I'm about to lie, <laughs> that that we need to see progress by October the 15th, which is a totally arbitrary measure. So Alex, overall, what does this all mean for the talks, do you think? Okay, so indulge me for 60 seconds because a lot is getting lost in the noise. So this is a potted summary, okay? May sends letter notifying that the UK intends to leave. 
talks start. On that very first day, that famous day of David Davis showing up without so much as a post-it, the UK asks for everything to be negotiated in parallel, and the EU refuses. The EU says three things are too important to us to even be on the table when we're talking trade. First, the money you already owe. Second, the rights of citizens already settled in our respective territories. Third, our responsibilities as co-guarantors of peace in Northern Ireland. We have to agree on those things, three things first. The UK concedes the point, and three years later, after all that hair-pulling, we agree those three points. The UK now is trying to return one of those three items onto the trade negotiation table. Does that sound like someone who is confident about their negotiating position? No. The UK has finally realized the weakness of its position with regard to trade, and it's basically trying to return to its only item of leverage, which is peace in Northern Ireland, And I have no doubt that if things get nasty, they will begin to walk back on their guarantees to EU27 citizens settled in this country. Okay, we now return you to your regularly scheduled podcast. Hello and welcome to this episode of Romaniacs, or as Paul Dacre will call it in his case against us at Ofcom, Exhibit A. I'm Ros Taylor and joining me are two of our regulars. Actor, writer, cook and discophile Alex Andreu has taken some time away from alphabetizing his record collection to join us. Hi Alex. <laughs> Great, now two thirds of our listeners believe I collect records of disco music. Alex, Joe Biden and Donald Trump faced off in their first debate on Tuesday night. It didn't seem like anyone came out of it well, not even the moderator. What did you make of it? Certainly not the audience. (laughs) I'll tell you, I stayed up up half the night to watch it. I think uh, Dana Bash put it best on, on CNN after the debate when she said, and I quote, that was a shit show. Trump was arguing with and talking over both the moderator and Biden, and occasionally he was talking over himself. I'm entirely serious. He would he would start a point, then think of something clever halfway through and literally interrupt himself. And the result was that much of the debate was just noise, to the point that the evening's most memorable line, I think, was Biden finally going, just shut up, man. <laughs> um Now, was this an inability to follow the rules or proudly showing that he's uncompromising and setting himself up as a non-establishment insurgent, even though he's president? I suspect the latter, but I'm not sure it worked. Uh, the, The problem for Trump is that every bit of polling shows his base is not enough for him to win, and he needs to appeal specifically to female graduate voters who like his politics but loathe his ugly manner. And what we got last night was zero politics and piles of ugly manner. So if I were Biden, still loads of points ahead in the polls, I'd be delighted. And Trump's tweets after the debate, sort of blaming the moderator, where did not exactly have a, a ring of lap of honor to them. I, I think he felt it went badly too. 
How did Biden perform, though? The bar had been set so low by these stories from the the Republicans that basically he's he's doddery and he I mean all Biden had to do was basically show up and not shit himself and fall <laughs> over by the end of the thing. So yeah, he did great <laughs> against that pretty low bar. <laughs> Maron of Remainers and Chief Exec of Best for Britain, Naomi Smith, is also with us. Hello, Naomi. Hi, Roz. Uh, one new COVID rule that came into force on Monday is that falsely reporting that someone needs to quarantine now carries a £1,000 fine. Uh, this, of course, immediately gave everyone the idea to do that to their enemies. Who was confined to two weeks' isolation? Well, if I was going to get slapped with a £1,000 fine, then absolutely no one. Um, But I guess if I was going to get away with it, if that's the question, you know, you can falsely accuse them and not get slapped with a fine, uh, then please could I add every single stupid sod that attended the anti-masker events over the last couple of weeks, um, or last couple of weekends at least, because surely, surely they're amongst the biggest super spreaders, um, and a two-week circuit break on them, I think, would be a beautiful thing, and hopefully help to reduce the R number and you know it's all looks like it's getting pretty out of control again cases jumped to a new record yesterday uh, Monday uh, oh sorry Tuesday so the the rule of six definitely doesn't appear to be working very well Uh, but who'd have thunk it you know given that a minister after prime minister after minister can't remember the rules let alone the public yesterday uh, and today have been quite extraordinary I think you know even for this shambolic at comms government you had Gillian Keegan MP Boris Johnson himself and then Alok Sharma uh, the day after all coming unstuck when questioned about who needs to abide by what um you know it, it would be a joke if it didn't have such mortal consequences yeah, and actually having a go at the BBC for um, asking, making it into a quiz show, apparently, rather than actually asking questions exactly. about what the rules were. Yeah. yeah. Our guest this week is a comedian, host of the Political Party podcast, contributor to the new series of Spitting Image, and author of the new book, Politically Homeless. It's full of tales from his time working behind the scenes in the Labour Party, and it contains opinions that have given him his fair share of enemies, that the chicken katsu curry is the best thing on the menu at Wagamama, for example. <laughs> Whereas we all know it's a cod. That's the best thing on the menu. Matt Ford, welcome back to Romaniacs. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be back. Your love of uh, Oasis is well documented. How did you feel when Noel Gallagher and Ian Brown came out as anti-maskers? Um, not happy, obviously, but Noel Gallagher's in an elite group of people who I will basically forgive anything. And I think even he has such a lovely voice, and I know we're going to come on to Spit an Image. There isn't an Noel Gallagher puppet yet, but there's something about the way he talks that I think he could say anything. You know, I don't wear a mask, right? And I'm not going to start wearing one. And if our kid wants to wear one, you know, that is fine. You know, but I wrote Live Forever in two minutes, right? And I can do what the fuck I want. And I just think, well, yeah, fine. <laughs> I actually saw some masks on sale the other day in Underline or something that were um, expressing their anger at having to wear a mask, which I guess is one way around the problem. <laughs> And actually said, I don't want to be wearing this. 
I guess if it makes people feel better, then I'm all for it. Anyway, your beloved Nottingham Forest haven't had the best lockdown, but they're likely to survive the season. With the furlough scheme ending and the decision to allow some fans into stadiums reversed, many smaller clubs are staring down the barrel. What's it going to take to save them? Well, luckily at Forest, we have a billionaire Greek shipping magnate owner, so we should be fine. Um, <laughs> and, and, and as long as Derby, Leicester and Sheffield United go out of business, I won't be too um, upset about it. But <laughs> in all seriousness, I mean, it's a problem. And I saw someone say the other day, I mean, on Twitter, I always forget who said what, because you just scroll through and you forget. But someone said, oh, shouldn't football sort out football's problems? And I have a certain amount of sympathy with that, given how uh, wealthy elements of the game are. But... Football does have a special place for a lot of people. And obviously, some people feel similarly about rugby league or cricket. But these things are about identity. It's not just about 22 blokes kicking a bag of air around or or women kicking a bag of air around. Like, they're called Nottingham Forest and Mansfield Town and Manchester United because they represent those places, not just in football, but in, in a kind of spiritual and emotional way. So... I think it would be a great shame. I wouldn't take much glee, actually, in, in all seriousness, about any football club going under at the moment because it's more than just a game, isn't it? You know, these are there are very few things in life. I mean, where else on a Saturday? I mean, at the moment, nowhere. But where else do like 30, <laughs> 40, 50, 60,000 people all get together? And these sing. Are, exactly. These are huge communal centres. You know, taking the sport out of it, you don't get people gathering on that scale that regularly for anything else. So um, yeah, I am. I am a bit worried, but I, I sort of I have hope that it's just such a big deal to the British public that if it was really in peril, something would have to be done. Well, I reckon that the moral of that story then is you know Romaniacs doing all right through lockdown because it's you know got a big Greek Nottingham Forest <laughs> doing all right. It's got a big Greek. If if you want to do well, you need to get yourselves a big Greek. Here it is. That's it. <laughs> This week, it's trade talks crunch week at last as the threat of no deal is sinking in. Will there be a climb down from the government? And if so, how will Johnson try to spin it as an amazing victory? Plus, we talked to Matt about the highs, lows and hangovers that marked his time in New Labour. Firstly, time's up. The last round of EU trade talks is taking place as we speak, with Britain and the EU as far apart as ever on fisheries, fair competition and dispute resolution. Michael Gove is back in Brussels and no doubt they're delighted to see him. (laughs) Well, it makes a change from superannuated whiskey salesman David Frost. (laughs) This all comes as, finally, the tide of public opinion seems to be turning. Some 50% of the public think that, in hindsight, Brexit was the wrong decision, compared to 39% who would think it was the right thing to do, according to a new YouGov poll. The more you know, the more you know. (laughs) Naomi, what's the state of play now? Is a deal really likely? Well, as usual, um, it depends who you ask. Uh, So the uh, Irish Taoiseach, Michael Martin, uh, has been saying this week that Ireland is drawing up its budget on the basis of no deal. And now that the internal markets bill has passed through the Commons, uh, it may be that the EU holds firm on on its threat uh, that, you know, absolutely no deal while you have provision to tear up the Northern Irish Protocol uh, remaining. However, it's worth remembering that although that's passed through the Commons, 
means it hasn't passed through the Lords and it won't therefore get royal assent as a bill until after the deadline for a UK-EU trade deal has passed. So technically it wouldn't be UK law and so maybe that's a fudge around for the EU. So I probably remain of the view that the odds are still slightly in favour of a very, very thin deal. And of course, it's going to be an incredibly pale imitation of the comprehensive, oven ready, you know, great deal that the Conservatives promised at the last election. But the fact that the talks have been extended by a day this week, the fact that government is getting more and more bad news and negative press from industry about it, you know, in the last 24 hours, you know, notable criticisms coming forward from the pharmaceutical sector, the chemical sector, you know, at a time where we are going to need these kinds of products traveling in a frictionless way across our borders more than ever because of the pandemic. And of course, the automotive industry uh, squealing pretty loudly over rules of origin issues with components. I think that that probably does all combine into such a bloody headache for the government that it leads us slightly closer to a deal than no deal. The gossip is that Johnson is still a bit undecided about whether he, you know, thinks that the, the benefits are significantly more from a deal than no deal. Uh, I don't think that's true. I think he, he does want a deal. He did always want a deal. And they will be pushing for that. And we may see some concessions uh, over the next few weeks. Alex, these talks have been grinding on for months with little tangible progress. And then the internal market bill threw a grenade into the works. The Brexit press has been hammering this narrative of ultimatums going back and forth. Our ultimatums are good and theirs are bad. What's really happening? What's really happening is the same thing that's been happening for four years. The UK will have to make a number of embarrassing concessions while spinning them as victories or walk away with no deal. That's what's going on. We like those, you know, the gymnasts in the parallel bars that sort of miss it and land flat on their face and then have to get up and sort of put their arms up and smile at everyone (laughs) as if that is exactly what they intended to do. (laughs) Then run into the arms of their coach, Donald, and sob quietly for the next (laughs) 20 minutes. Um, So I think that's what's going on. According to the British Chambers of Commerce, only half of the UK firms that trade internationally have considered the impact of Brexit on their business. Is that solely because we still don't know whether we're leaving with a deal, so it wouldn't be fair to expect them to to make any reasonable preference? (laughs) Or, Or do they need to get their act together at this point? I mean, I think a portion of them have been saying that, that, you know, trying to cope with COVID has basically sucked all oxygen, finance, brain power, you know, out of them even thinking about Brexit preparations, but also a really big proportion in the same survey, almost half, still believe the transition period will be extended. I don't know why, but that's what they believe. And in taking back control news, it's been revealed that Priti Patel floated the idea of processing asylum seekers from British Overseas Territory, Essential Island. That's 5,000 miles away for those of you who haven't yet been there. We we can laugh, but this is the same government that wants a bridge from Scotland to Northern (laughs) Ireland. And I seem to recall in the past a bridge from Britain to France as well. Anyway, is this the next logical step in the hostile environment to actually literally offshore the problem? I've got to tell you, I'm not laughing about this yeah. at all. Um, the The most disturbing report I heard from a very well-plugged-in contact was that 
this was a bit of red meat thrown to the anti-lockdown hard-right Tory rebels, and it sounds to me entirely plausible and incredibly frightening because it reveals that the government's patella reflex when in trouble is to throw migrants to the wolves, and the government, I fear, will be in trouble a hell of a lot in the coming years. Matt, in the UK, confidence in our role as a global force for good has plummeted in the last 18 months, according to a new Ipsos Mori poll. Are we a second league nation now? Are we hovering outside the G25 of diplomacy? I mean, I don't think so. You know, I'm, I'm as much of a Remainer as anyone on this show and as anyone who listens to it. And I'm still um, processing my grief about our departure from the EU and what it says about us and what it, its effect on the world. But I still think we're a we're a strong, medium-sized country. We're still a nuclear power. We're still one of the most powerful economies in the world. So I think it's important that people on our side don't get too down on ourselves. Just, you know, things aren't great. Let's not, you know, let's be honest about it. But I don't think we should lose all sight of, of the strengths that Britain still, you know, and I think those strengths are dwindling as a result of this decision. And, and I, I fear about the direction of travel. But at the moment, I think we're still a hugely influential country. If there is going to be a compromise from the UK to get a deal done, which let's face it, there does have to be, where where do we think it's going to be? Um, Naomi? It, it's a tough one. I mean, today we've seen um, the state aid rules uh, by the WTO be enforced and the US being slapped with a, a fine for having breached them. Um, and so maybe that will focus attentions a bit here that, you know, this isn't just something that is expected of us with the EU, but, but you know, if we default onto WTO terms, you know, we're not going to be uh, free of those. Um, we've also seen the UK today uh, negotiate a deal with Norway over fish, which is a boon to the British fishing industry. And maybe therefore they might feel they could do a little bit of leeway on that with the EU um, because it will be partially offset by Norway. But uh, yeah, uh, I don't know is the, is the very honest answer about it. Alex, how about you? Where do you think it's uh, the crunch is going to come? I think it's already moving on fishing. I think they're now talking about possibly a sort of trans the UK has offered a three-year transitional period on fishing rules that will probably be extended to five there's movement on uh, state aid and sort of level playing field where the UK again has made an offer to comply but they're still squabbling about what they infor- the adjudication and enforcement mechanism will be I'm afraid I think, as I've said for four years, I know it's tiresome, but the EU is not going to give free access to their market to an external party that has the ability to undercut the the people in that block in several ways. So the choice is, how much do you want access to that market? If you really want access to that market, you'll have to abide by its rules. It was always thus. Are you saying that fish, British fish, are going to be <laughs> into long grass? <laughs> because that's not an image I want to see. Fish being kicked into the long grass. <laughs> um, or, or down the road, either way. Eels come, eels come out, don't they? Eels sort of go into the long grass to give birth. 
Yeah, I still wouldn't like to put them into it. Anyway, um, Matt, do you have a sense of um, where the government's going to have to bend? Well, I just, you know, I'll tell you what I find interesting actually about the whole thing is that is the discussion over fishing is actually one of the few areas, you know, when you think of the, what the what uh, leaving the EU is doing to the politics of the UK and the, the kind of the urgency it's given, uh, an already urgent Scottish independence movement, fishing is actually one of the things that it's not inconceivable that the UK benefits from, from, from leaving the EU and actually just in terms of the politics of Scotland might be a, a little nudge or, or a little correction in the course where people in Scotland might go actually rejoining the EU actually isn't necessarily the best thing if we go independent. So in a weird way, there's some, is there an element of leaving that makes Scottish independence less likely? I doubt it, but if there is, that might be the thing. Our guest this week is comedian Matt Ford, whose book Politically Homeless is out next Thursday, October the 8th. He describes growing up under Thatcherism and joining the Labour Party at 15, discovering that the membership card worked well as a fake ID. He began working for the party at the height of its power, which involved, among many other things, wearing a chicken suit to show up the late Charles Kennedy. And he's wearing it to this recording for old time. (laughs) (laughs) What happened more recently with Labour has been covered many times on this podcast. So to start at the beginning, what was it about Labour as a teenager that made it feel like home to you? I guess it was the time in which I was growing up. And it's kind of a point I'm making in the book is that I grew up at the right time to kind of get into Labour. I was 14 when Labour won in 1997. I, I first started getting interested in politics around the age of eight or nine under the Thatcher government. And it was just obvious to me, that the world was really unfair. And that sounds like a sort of grand uh, thing to say about an eight-year-old, but I grew up in a single-parent family on benefits in inner city Nottingham. We were burgled a lot. It wasn't, you know, there were huge benefits to living in an area like that, but we only lived there because we couldn't afford to live anywhere else. There was a lot of societal judgment about growing up in a single-parent family. And, um, you know, we didn't have much money, and it was we were growing up at the, at the thin end of the wedge. And then... You're sort of born with it, you know, not born with the idea, but at a young age, you start to think, well, this doesn't really feel like a sort of fair way to organise society, even though I'm obviously not thinking about it in those specific terms. And then Labour then goes through this period where Tony Blair becomes the leader. And I, you know, whatever people say about Tony Blair since, I, I think it's sort of unfair to not give credit that when he came in, he made millions of people, particularly, I think, people like me from my background, genuinely feel like for once we might have a shot at having an actual life. And and that was just one of the most exciting things. It was as exciting as Britpop. It was as exciting as Euro 96. It was just, it was such a big deal in my life. And from then on, I was hooked. You went to work for the uh, former Sherwood MP, Paddy Tipping, and you've got a lot of praise for him. What did he do in the job that other MPs can learn from? He was a, he had the great mix of having like a really big, funny personality, but a, a relentless work rate. And what he realised was being an MP isn't just being an MP in Parliament, it's campaigning back in the constituency. Now, a lot of people listening to this might go, well, of course, that's obvious. I can tell you, having worked for other Labour MPs and around other Labour MPs, so I won't name, not all of them have that attitude. <laughs> and his seat was a lot safer than some of the ones around him. And he campaigned I'll go on, name a couple. Oh, no, I can't because, <laughs> because I get on with them. But he was a grafter. And just some of the things he did, like he really woke me up to what politics 
Fuzzy is about, which is actually changing people's lives, but how to be a really good, effective, canny campaigning local MP. So on Fridays, you know, if there'd been a space of burglaries in an area or a problem with antisocial behaviour on a park, we would just immediately go to that area. And he was out campaigning all the time anyway. But we would go there and he'd print off letters on House of Commons headed notepaper and he'd knock on people's doors and say, look, I've been reading the paper out, what's been happening, how can I help? And if people weren't in, they'd get a letter through the door. You just think, over the course of at least a parliament, no one really in that constituency could say he hadn't been in touch. He just bombarded the whole area. And doing that between elections is so much more effective than just rocking up before the election. Like th- that, That's what differentiates MPs, the ones that will do it literally from the week after polling day that they get elected they're you know they're doing it that is so true and he was he was just so good at dealing with us so many times and there's a couple of stories in the book where he covered former mining areas you know these are these are council estates basically in the middle of the countryside they've got their own kind of ecosystem that they're left behind years before that phrase was being used. And a lot of the people there are rightly very angry. And you knock on doors, ex-coal miners, big fellas, and they go, if that Paddy Tippin knocks on my door, I'll break his fucking neck. And, All right, yeah. And then Paddy go, uh, what did he say? I said, oh, he just, yeah, he's not a fan, you know. And he'd, just, he'd knock on the door. And within, a, within less than a minute, these people would be pissing themselves laughing with him. He had a remarkable knack for dealing with people. And he just, I think his personality was, you know, just such a radiant person, but his approach to politics was total. Um, and it was done in a really uncynical way, because that can often sound like you're doing all this stuff just to win. But he, he really cared about people. He got a lot of stuff done for people. And he realised he could only do that if he kept his seat. The work you did while you were in Labour was all very local and regional, though you did get to hang out at parties with Tony Blair at number 10 now and then, and there's a couple of good anecdotes about that. How much was Europe being talked about in those circles back in the middle of the last decade? Did anyone have a clue what was coming? Not really. I mean, there was a sense. I mean, I remember going to a Britain in Europe event in Nottingham. So that was, you know, when when Tony Blair and Ken Clark, Heseltine, Charles Kennedy and Gordon Brown, I think, did a few things. And I went to see Ken Clark talk in Nottingham. And I, I think I've still got the T-shirt somewhere. <laughs> so there was a kind of sense then that, and that was around, a lot of that was around trying to soften the ground to get into the, to the single currency. But I think there was, I think the three major parties, the mainstream elements of them, as they were then realised that, the case kind of had to be remade for, for, for Europe. But then I think it just kind of slipped down the pecking order. And I think the more, obviously, then big things start to happen, like foot and mouth and obviously Iraq, and then cross-party stuff on grand things like that became a lot harder. There's a special mention for Tessa Jowell in the book, who you interviewed for the political party in 2014. I, I remember asking her what I thought was a killer question once when I was a very young journalist, and she put her hand on my knee and she said very sweetly, nice try, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Why did she stand out for you? She is. Um, she's one of the most amazing people I've ever met in my life. I feel so emotional about her. I find it really mm. hard to talk about it without um, sort of coming close to tears, really, because I really feel like I met a kind of saint. There was just... And what was odd was... I didn't expect to kind of have that reaction. You know, I, I, I booked her because I was a fan and I interviewed politicians from across the spectrum. And I thought it was going to be good fun. I thought it was going to be a good laugh, but I didn't expect to be so emotionally moved and touched by her. She just had the way she talked about politics and being a politician and, and the, the moral importance that that, you know, the, the, the seriousness with which she took it in the right way, not that, that she was po-faced, but that she realised she'd been given a really special job by people. And uh, like that meant the world to her. 
And uh, you could I just remember the night so clearly because the more she, as, as the night unfolded, you could just feel the audience getting closer and closer and closer to her. And she was kind of, she got quite teary at one point, just talking about how important being a politician was to her in, in the sense that it meant that she could sort people's problems out. And I've just never met anyone like that. I've met politicians from all parties, some who are charismatic and some that aren't and some that can really speak well and all shades in between. I've never met anyone anywhere on earth that comes anywhere close to what Tessa Jowell had. And I think, you know what, had I met her in biblical times, I'd have said I've met like a an angel or a spirit or something. I, I wouldn't have had the kind of the modern science to rule out the fact that she wasn't from heaven or something. She was just, she was just an amazing person just in in a different way in a word that I realized I'm I'm not able to adequately convey words aren't enough. She had something else. But Rose, come on. What was your killer question? (laughs) I no longer even remember it. (laughs) That's the embarrassing thing. It was clearly, you know, cut through so much. Matt, uh, Romaniacs was, um, you know, founded, of course, because we wanted to champion European values after Brexit and and call out how insane Brexit felt. And therefore, it was very much born out of what I would describe as a righteous anger at how everything was being handled. But you pour scorn uh, in the book on your former comrades in the Socialist Workers' Party who you joined before Labour. Uh, I think for age reasons, uh, they, they they didn't have a lower age limit. Um, uh, but, but you pour scorn on them for being angry all the time. Uh, but, you know, some people would say, well, anger, anger can be a force for good and, and change in politics. So how can we channel anger in a more constructive way, do you think? Oh, it can. Yeah, I mean, anger... You're right to be angry about certain things. You know, if you don't get angry about the inequality in the world or, or, or the incompetence of our governments, the way that things like the coronavirus has been handled, then in a way you don't have any empathy. My point with the SWP was they were literally angry all the time about everything <laughs> always. And that that is not, as I'm sure any doctors listening to this will say, that's not a healthy way to live. And you will live a lot shorter life if you don't at least find five minutes in your day to listen to music or have a cup of tea or something it was the it was the relentless anger and it was it was anger as a kind of as a as a way to prove your place in the hierarchy you know the angrier you were the the more currency you had or to do what uh, you say even Osama bin Laden did in the book but by way of relief uh, which I won't say because this may go out pre-watershed and so yeah I would advise listeners to go and look up that reference in the book if they want a few tips on relaxation. Um, you also warn in the book that the danger in politics is that our nostalgia for time gets fused with a desire to sort of repeat it identically and uh, you know that's something on this show we often talk about with the Brexiteers, the ultra Brexiteers that sort of long for this age of empire. But isn't there a risk that as a as a sort of wistful 1997 Blairite, you could also be accused of, you know, having that nostalgia and wanting to repeat it all identically, bring back oh, the 97 government? Oh, of course, yeah. And that's that's partly the reason why I included it, is that I think, and the point I make is, it's entirely natural to reminisce about the good days. You know, and if you're a Labour supporter and you enjoyed Labour being in office and winning, obviously, really, the only good days I've seen the Labour Party have was was the Blair-Brown era. So it's obviously natural to reminisce about that as you would reminisce about a cup final victory. But wanting Labour to be electable again and, and to be where 
I think Labour should be doesn't mean that they have to literally go back to 1997 and promise smaller class sizes, the New Deal and, and whatever else. It's about applying the mindset of 1997 to the problems that you face now. And I think Brexit's a really good example. I think in Labour circles, 1945 is one. And I think I hear Labour people sometimes reminisce about the, the Attlee government as if in some way, life was actually better back then. Yeah. The lesson of that government is you have like a big policy solution to a to a current problem. It's not that we should all go back to being on twenty p an hour with no workers' rights and all the rest of it. Like the the, the danger is, is that you want to re you want to rerun the whole thing rather than rerun the lesson, which is mm. you know for Attlee is how do you deal with and 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 the coronavirus thing is obviously sort of brings that to the to the fore because you think this is this is a Labour government that could potentially win the next election or the one after that that will have to rebuild a country and when the world is going to be rebuilding after this whole collective disaster and the lessons from 45 obviously in in that regard are are interesting for Keir Starmer but it doesn't mean you go back to living the way we did then and and for new Labour people like myself it's not about trying to recreate the the thing it's about how do you take what Labour the mindset of what Labour was able to do in 1997 and apply it to 2020. I mean, that said, 1997 was amazing. Like (laughs) That period in life was absolute. There hasn't been a better period since. 97 to 01, I'll give you, is easily the best government I've lived under. Yeah. And like music was good. England, like we hosted your 96, (laughs) obviously that was just before, but like that, that brief period where the economy was booming, Music was coming out of here. Oh, man. And your Labour Party membership card got you in underage into bars to go boozing. So you were, you had freedom like never before. I can't believe it worked because you don't even have a photo on it. It's just a card with your <laughs> name on it. But I just tried my luck. I was like, oh, yeah, uh, you have to be 18 to join the Labour Party, mate. You went, oh, no. Yeah, and I know. I know. know. Get me in pubs all over the place. <laughs> Great day. Mine was uh, Bally Money Technical College fake ID. <laughs> <laughs> and my name is Siobhan. Um, you've got a whole chapter in the book about what you learned in politics and you kind of use it to advise politicians um, of, of you know how to avoid certain pitfalls and things like that. And one thing is that you, you advise them to answer the question they want to answer in a media interview rather than the question that they've actually been asked. So I guess my question to you is, does that reinforce the stereotype of politicians sort of ducking and swerving and and never being honest uh, in answering things. And if you try to answer a different question to the one I've just posed, I am going to go full Paxman v. Michael Howard on you. Well, the the example I use in the book actually is a sort of rare bit of praise for Ed Miliband in that he would literally ask himself a different question out loud in the next (laughs) book. You go, look, Naomi, if you're asking me, is the book available now? Then it is. And you go, oh, I am. It kind of looks like a mind trick that kind of works. But... I take the point. I think that the point of the, the rule as a piece of advice is so many media interviews now are, are really combative. And if you just literally, you know, a lot of the questions are really sort of borderline rude. So if you just, you, you'll effectively just get into an argument. If, it's, if yeah. it's a fairly straight interview where you're being asked reasonable questions, it doesn't matter so much. But if you're doing... Talk radio. Interview, yeah, talk radio <laughs> or Piers Morgan or whoever, then of course you're going on there to try and promote a policy or an idea that you're trying to communicate to the public. So you're trying to then effectively circumnavigate the, the interview. And I think if if politics and the media were just a little less mutually antagonistic, you wouldn't have to use techniques like that. But they are, so you kind of you kind of have to use them, I'm afraid. Brilliant. Alex, over to you. Thank you, Siobhan. Um, 
Uh, Matt, you're contributing to the new series of Spitting Image and Britbox. Uh, from what I hear of you as a sort of uh, child uh, under Thatcher, you must have been a, a big fan of the original. What was that like? What's it like working on the reincarnation of that? It's, it's absolutely surreal. I've, I've worked on other things and, and made other shows, you know, on the telly, radio, live, all sorts of things. Th- this is just unlike anything else I've worked on. And the time in which we've made it is so surreal as well because I've been writing on it in my spare room. I've been recording my bits for it in my spare room. And then it was only the other day where we saw the trailer and you realise all the, all the stuff you've just been working <laughs> away on in your flat is now part of this really big deal. And you see the Trump puppet and the Boris puppet talking to each other, and you think that I'm doing both those voices. You know, <laughs> I feel in a way like I've won a competition. It, I just feel like, oh my god, I can't believe I'm working on this amazing thing that's really fun to work on. And not every telly show is really fun to work on. This is really <laughs> fun to work on, and I just feel really lucky to be voicing, particularly those two, because at the moment you know, they're the ones that have got all the focus because they're the ones, I guess, that are the most sort of horrific. <laughs> I mean, how difficult is it to caricature people like that who are already so close to being caricatures? They, they're sort of, you know, over the last decade, they've developed almost into drag acts of themselves. Yeah. Well, th- what's great about Spitting Images, because it's a puppet show, the freedom you've got, to be disgusting and gross um, and as well as just put them in different places. You know, you can put them into space if you want, or you can have them <laughs> having an underground layer and stuff. You can, you can, you've got all the freedom that you would have on something like the Simpsons or something like that, because you can create these worlds. So you can put them into ever more ludicrous or indeed mundane uh, scenarios than you would usually see them in. And that's just such a powerful way. And I think there's something, the magic of spitting image really is the puppets is they look they look really mm. like them, yeah, but yeah. they're really nasty likenesses of them. And you feel like you sort of captured something dark about each and every one of them. And I think that itself is the power of it. And then in terms of writing, obviously you make it as, as, as sort of, you, you simultaneously want to really yeah, yeah, yeah. them, but make it, you know, really funny and, and really surreal if you can. And then in the voicing with Trump, my impression of him has kind of become more of a caricature. So I kind of put, um, I kind of make him squeak a bit more than he probably does. You know, I, I, I put little, so I'd say words like, um, I go, Mike, you can't trust him. He's sneaky. And kind of, <laughs> kind of, make him kind of like more cartoony and more daft because then you're really mocking him. It's basically a playground. You know, you're mocking the way he sounds. You're making it, you're going, no, 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 no. You know, it's kind of, what's simil- what's amazing about it is simultaneously, a really satirical way to attack someone. It you really show that the fundamental truth of them, and you have a good old laugh about how they look and sound. You know, there's, there's like a, it sort of hits every button. So there's got to be something underneath, yeah. Because Chris Morris last year said that comedy without that something underpinning it risks being just an exotic display for the court. And you you get Michael Gove saying it's a great honour to be included in the series and have his own puppets. So can satire like that end up backfiring if politicians are flattered to be shown as mean and sort of uh, mercenary and nasty? Uh, no, I totally agree with the Chris Morris rule, effectively. And um, 
as for Michael Gove being flattered, I don't believe he is. I think yeah. he, I think he realised that's what he had to say. <laughs> he's a ball sack, basically, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, his, his, his cheeks he... are bollocks and his nose is a cock. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is not flattering. That is not a compliment. You know, this is... And, and, um, the way he's portrayed in the show is absolutely not a compliment. You know, I get that, in a way, having a spitting image puppet is a recognition of a level of status, but if a cabinet minister doesn't feel they have sufficient status, and I realise a lot of them don't, um, then obviously that says more about him. But you know that's that's what underpins everything we do on Spitting Image is it has to have that satirical ring of truth to it. You can have your you can have all the silly bits and all the funny bits, but you have to be lampooning the kind of the darkness, the tragedy that you know the way that coronavirus has been handled and, and the awful decisions they make and the incompetence of them. And sometimes, if there is mal- the malicious intent behind decisions, so um, all that has to be in there. And then on top of that. You know, you want to see him hitting each other with planks of wood and you know, <laughs> farting and having willy contests. On the flip side of that, um, does you know, there's been a little bit of discussion about does Greta Thunberg deserve to be part of that cast? Is she fair game? What, what's your What's your feeling? Well, I think it depends on how you portray her. I think whether or not she should have a puppet. I think she absolutely should because she's one of the most prominent people in the world and. Mm. Um, in a way, it's a kind of mark of respect for her that that you you include her in this canon of world leaders. You're, you're trying to you're trying to sort of represent the most powerful and influential people on the planet, and undoubtedly she is. I saw actually she'd liked the tweet when when spitting image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She liked the puppet. Her. She'd liked it. So obviously, the challenge then is how you present her, how you write her, and how you voice her. It's, it's not whether she should or shouldn't be in. I so think. so did Michael Gove to, to return to <laughs> this <laughs> previous thing. So, so they are in different, you know, they are in different. I know, but once they're out there, they kind of have to like it. Um, so you sleep well at night, do you, you monstrous bully? Um, <laughs> let's, let's, let's move on. Um, just one final brief question. Now, a lot of younger Labour members who campaigned very hard in the same way you used to for the party are now as upset and and alienated under Starmer as you were under Corbyn. What would you say to them? Well, if they're upset by the direction of Keir Starmer and they were enamoured with Jeremy Corbyn, they probably shouldn't have been in the Labour Party. And I think that applies to anyone of any age. Uh, is that a lot of older people were were enamoured with with Jeremy Corbyn, and a lot of people my age were, and a lot of people were repelled. The Labour Party has to have clear definitions as to what it actually stands for and what it what it is. And I never thought Jeremy Corbyn was a real Labour person. I always thought he was going to lead Labour to defeat. And as I say in the book, victory is a Labour value because it's the foundation, the reason why Labour was formed, and wasn't just the Fabian Society or the Co-op movement. It's, it was to the whole point was to be a party of government. And if you are working against that by taking it in a direction of defeat, you're working against the founding aims and values of the party. So Jeremy Corbyn really should be in the Socialist Worker Party. And um, any young people, middle-aged people or older people who still agree with Jeremy Corbyn should, should probably go with him. And I don't mean that as an insult. I mean, their politics are what held Labour back. So for all the energy, actually, it was hugely counterproductive. And I actually think a lot of young people, as I did, and I started out joining the SWP, people do go on a bit of a journey sometimes and the radicalism is attractive and the simple answers are really attractive um, at any age. And then in time you, you mellow because actually losing to the Tories hurts more and more each time it happens. So I think a lot of those young people actually will 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 grow with the Labour Party as it, as it moves in a, in a more 
um, sort of traditional Labour direction. Speaking of Keir Starmer, you've got a voice for him for Spitting Image. Will you give us a bit of uh, Keir Starmer? Because he strikes me as a really hard person to do. Yeah, he is. He's very different to, I mean, as you rightfully um, said, Boris and Trump are kind of already, as Alex said, kind of drag act versions of themselves. You know, they've <laughs> created caricatures for themselves already. Whereas Starmer is at the opposite end of the spectrum. He is highly professional, very controlled, very legal and parliamentary in the way that he expresses himself. So obviously, we are, you know, we bought his thing, these sorts of, ah, yeah, the noises, and, you know, the national, I mean, the Cardiff West, and the European, I mean, EU, I mean, all that you sort of really enjoy the sort of noise and sound of him if he wasn't our prime minister of course but i mean just in the sort of in in, <laughs> in the performance of him is quite fun whereas keir starmer is you know there is no kind of the, the one thing i think he sounds a little bit like a cross between kind of alan rickman and josh widdicombe and there is a kind yes. of <laughs> there is a kind of blockage there <laughs> very clear with the prime and i give way to the honorable gentleman of course i do who makes a valid contribution you know there is a kind of <laughs> it's almost like just one of his nostrils is blocked yeah like the tongue the tongue throws to the back of it of the mouth and the, yeah it sounds a bit bunged up doesn't it? yeah so he's a kind of bunged up I mean, so many of them, you know, Ed Miliband sounds bugged up. You know, Kirst Starmer sounds a bit bugged up. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, Rishi Sunak sounds a bit like Tony Blair and a bit like Ed Miliband. And they're all sort of, so many of them are actually on quite a narrow strip of the dartboard. You know, it's like you're trying to hit treble 20 every time and they're all in there. Um, but yes, yeah, Starmer is very professional. <laughs> I think it's a kind of cartoony take on him at the moment. Hello, it's Andrew Harrison, the producer here. If you like Romaniacs, you will love The Bunker. Every Wednesday, the Romaniacs regulars plus new guests get together for a no-holds-barred political roundtable about anything and everything except Brexit. What we are definitely living through is a golden age of incompetence. We don't talk about the parts of the data pipeline that are the cause of misleading arguments. On Mondays, Tuesdays, Thursdays and Fridays, there's The Bunker Daily with one-to-ones and explainers on everything from the economy to the arts, culture, and even food. Italians are extravagant about food, but never wasteful. That's what I'm like. I'm a genius. That's what the J stands for, Donald J. Trump. That's The Bunker, with all your favourites from Romaniacs and more. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for To the Barricades, where each week we choose a cause for Romaniacs listeners to rally behind. And it can't just be by my book, even though Matt has got a book out. So Matt, what's your choice? No, you're right. I can't promote the book. So watch Spitting Image this Saturday on Britbox. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I would return to the thing I was teased about earlier in the show, which is the chicken katsu curry at Wagamama's, which <laughs> was so obviously the best dish on the menu. And I just think if you go there and you don't have it, you're wasting your own time. <laughs> You're wasting everyone. It's, the, it's one of the best things ever invented. Oh, another seven-year-old palate, you know. <laughs> <me>. <laughs> You've got to try Ian's Doritos lasagna. Then you might Ooh, change your mind. What? Dorito <laughs> lasagna? Yeah, I knew you'd like the sound of that one. And what, what, what is lasagna made with? What, the Doritos form the kind of pasta, pasta layer, yep. do they? And any particular flavour, like chilli yeah, heat wave? Like chicken soup, he pours on it. <laughs> <laughs> That's disgusting. Doesn't that then compromise the structural integrity of the Doritos? Look, we'll, we'll get him to make it for you one day. Please, Matt, yes, you, you please. You can be the judge. Yeah. If that one day could be today, I'd be very grateful. 
<laughs> Are you mingling right now in a group of six or less? Outgrowth shooting in a pub garden, your own garden, or about to start a sing along? Well, don't. And if you're in a pub, make sure you're out of there by 10 o'clock, unless it's a parliamentary bar, in which case that was okay for a bit until they realised it looked bad. (laughs) It's been six months since the Coronavirus Act passed. MPs were going to have a possible vote on an amendment on a bigger say on renewing emergency powers later. But the Speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, today said that he couldn't allow that. Nonetheless, he was very, very critical of the government in having passed an act which enabled it to make laws without consulting Parliament. Naomi, an 80-seat majority should have been enough to avoid rebellion on pretty much anything, but familiar contrarians like Steve Baker have been threatening to vote against the government this week. Do they have a point? Because Martha Spurrier, the head of Liberty, urged MPs to repeal the bill in The Guardian yesterday, and she said some of its measures were completely unjustified. Should a government be able to make law without consulting Parliament? Um, look, I think I think on the substance of all of this, there is a difference between those who genuinely oppose concentration of power into the hands of the executive and those who oppose it because they're libertarians who care more about personal freedoms than the health of the collective, because, you know, this is all framed within coronavirus legislation. Um, and so as a liberal, you know, I'm generally dead against that and a lack of parliamentary scrutiny. Um, and I was pretty concerned to understand that the new laws that were slipped out on a Sunday night, you know, uh, with just a few hours before they came in to force, um, contained the fact that if someone mistakenly identifies you as a recent close contact um, to government officials, that you're still going to be forced to self-isolate for 10 days or face criminal penalties, and that there is absolutely no route to challenge any mistaken information. And that could have some pretty dire consequences for some people who have to worry about, you know, lost income and childcare and other family responsibilities. And to have no recourse through an appeal is, you know, sort of feels like the stuff of tyranny. It does appear that, I mean, many, most uh, of, of those opposing the government from the Tory benches, at least, seem to be doing so from the perspective of being very cross about lockdowns, inhibiting their ability to go out and, and grouse shoot or, or drink in the pub, whatever it is that they're worried about. And they're, they're making a process about parliamentary scrutiny um, a foil for their more individualistic tendencies. So it's an unlikely alliance on the face of it, isn't it? Because David Lammy, the Shadow Justice Secretary, said he was very sympathetic to the rebel Tory MPs. Yeah, but I mean, come on, in politics, it's just so often true that my enemy's enemy is my friend at at moments like this. And I suspect that that's what's going on here. Alex, as winter approaches, the pressure to ease some lockdown measures is going to increase. Is there a way to do this better? Oh, God, yes. Yes. At the moment, there are tons of people on on their sort of toddler, no, I don't want to trip. I don't want to wear a mask. I don't want to socially distance. I don't want to work from home. I don't want to. I don't want any kind of lockdown. A concentrated campaign aimed at really explaining to people that the smaller measures are actually on the opposite side of the scales from full lockdown. The more of this you do, the less this becomes likely would shift public opinion. I've seen it personally when I explain this stuff to people who ask me. 
I had a conversation yesterday with someone who said, you know, my child is allowed to go to school and mix with 30 pupils, but but she's not allowed to see her grandparents. And I said, well, that's the point, though. Your child mingles with 30 people at school, and then they take whatever they picked up from those 30 people to their grandparents. And the moment you'd articulated it in a rational way, they got it. it you know, also short daily 10 minutes science-led briefings need to come back without a politician in sight. In Greece, the fact that our chief scientific advisor, Dr. Soterios Tsiodras, became a daily measured, trusted fixture had a huge effect on compliance. Matt, you shielded for three months at the beginning of the year, only leaving your flat in June once the seasons had changed. Is the government acting fast enough as the second wave hits, do you think? I don't think so, no. And I think the appetite, actually, for most people, I think most people have taken it really seriously and and just done what they consider to be kind of fairly essential stuff for their own survival, like getting food or going to work if they can't work from home. And I I think generally the appetite would be, if you need to lock us down, just do it. You know, it's going to be rubbish anyway, mates of mine who've been to the pub say it's crap like it's not actually that good so those of us that are being more cautious actually aren't missing out on much so just if you need to be tough just be tough I think there is I think they've slightly underestimated where public opinion is I think most people would especially as you go into winter and you don't really want to leave the house much anyway now's the time to be a little bit you know to to, to restrict us a little bit in, in in those ways not in terms of more fundamental freedoms, but in terms of what we went through before, I think people could stomach it again on the whole. I agree. And I think that the libertarians are just failing to understand that these half measures prolong the curtailment to freedoms for, and, for a and great make you know, a and, full and, lockdown more likely. Indeed, indeed. Whereas, you know, I think the circuit break stuff probably would be needed or, or another sort of full longer national lockdown. And and then, you know, they may be freer again more quickly, but I think what their strategy is going to end up pursuing is kind of like this endless half-measure stuff, which, you know, pleases no one and doesn't stop the virus. And also, a lot of these libertarians just are contrary for the sake of it. That's their currency. They're the person in the group who's always got the unfashionable opinion. And if the government was saying, don't wear masks, they'd all be out there wearing them. Because they'd want to rebel against the mainstream. They'd say, actually, I want a mask. The government's trying to kill you, man. And people like Piers Corbyn and David I could be in Trafalgar Square going, see, there's a virus out there and they don't want to protect you and all that, you know, all that conspiracy stuff would just get flipped and reheated another way because they just want to rebel against whatever it is that's happening. Most libertarians are tedious people. Well, with that, we've re- reached the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> My thanks to Naomi and Alex. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks to Matt Ford. The new series of Spitting Images on BritBox from Saturday, October the 3rd, and his book Politically Homeless is out on October the 8th. Can you tell us who will be on the first episode, Matt? I'm not sure how many spoilers I can give you. I, th- I don't think it's a I don't think it's a huge spoiler to say that Donald Trump and Boris Johnson might be in it. Um, I'm, I'm just trying to think who else. Is most of it in the can, Matt, or are you recording stuff this week? Yeah, we've recorded stuff this week. In fact, I'm recording stuff tonight. Oh, um, so we write some stuff like the week before the show, and then um, we've written a load of stuff this week. That we so we've spent the last two full days writing. We've been writing today, and I will record that tonight. And then there's potential to to re- write and record later in the week should something big happen. So it's very much up to the minute. I am so envious of you having this gig. 
I mean, <laughs> you were born for it. Yeah, well, amazing. And I, 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 yeah, if you he ever did, need Nerlene, he did report. <laughs> Ro- he did report Rory Bremner with COVID two weeks before it was due to start recording. <laughs> yeah. I injected him with it. I wanted to be absolutely sure. <laughs> I did see a truly terrifying trailer involving Trump, Johnson, and Vladimir Putin in a sauna, yes. and what? Some body parts, which I, I just can't, you know, I can't begin to convey. So, yeah, that's going to be yeah. going to be quite uh, shocking. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Don't forget, Backing Romaniacs on Patreon gets you each episode early and exclusive access to our live streams. Finally, it's time for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and a list of our latest backers. And we've got some special guests to read the names out this week. Hello from me, and thank you to Chris Fitzsimmons. <laughs> sounds like a great guy. Thomas O'Reilly sounds like an Irish dude. I know that a lot of Irish people are very good people. But some of them not so good, but I, I get confused about which is which. And Christopher Webster, who I think, I think if he's donating to this sort of show, is the kind of bedwetting, Ramoniac idiot that Boris <laughs> Johnson really doesn't like. Uh, uh, well, thank you so much. I, I agreed on the two. And indeed, learned uh, uh, friends of mine who've contributed to this great crucible of culture and educational. Uh, right. And they are Richard Scott, uh, uh, one of those people who has a first name for a surname and a surname for a first name. And uh, Laurie, Laurie Hayes. Uh, 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 I can't figure out whether the Laurie is a male or a female. And uh, Giles Byford. Giles uh, uh, tend to be pretty straight up cats. I will give way uh, to the uh, uh, enemy now, to the, to, the, to the leader of the opposition. I would like to place on record <laughs> my party's thanks. And now I recognise that when the Prime Minister has been right, that he has been, and we will not only pay tribute to those names, Mr. Speaker, but to John Starbuck, to Sarah Scriver, and Mick Wilson. Oh, Mick Wilson, I sound like a trade unionist of some description, no doubt, some sort of semi Marxist, commie, uh, you, 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 you pairing up with Putin to attack uh, Russian uh, down white. I think it's a disgrace. Uh, the, the, the leader of the opposition read out the name of Mick Wilson, who is well known uh, as uh, some sort of commie. Romaniacs was presented by Ros Taylor with Naomi Smith and Alex Andre. Audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. <laughs>